Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Just Press Play, and we have got an extra episode this week, which is fantastic. We got this really cool interview. Kevin got a hold of this basketball player that you might have heard of named Rodney Clark. If you haven't heard of Rodney Clark, what you need to know is that in his sophomore year of high school, he literally put his team on the map. They'll talk about it in a little bit. You'll get to understand what happened there. But he literally put his team on the map. I don't know what you were doing your sophomore year of high school, but I'll tell you what I was doing. I was finding out that AP classes weren't for me. I was passing crossword puzzles back and forth to Dr. Payne. And I was sitting in a light booth in the theater watching Robert change colors while we listened to T-Pain. And while I was doing that, Mr. Rodney Clark over here was putting his little Oklahoma town on the map. So when we heard that he was having trouble getting back to America because he's playing professional basketball in Italy and the tribulations that they went through to get back here. Well, I mean, we just had to ask him about his story. So Kevin hooked up with him and they talked about that. And please listen to the whole interview. They talk about not only the difficulties that they've had getting through this whole situation and now getting to something that's a little bit more stable, but then also the, you know, the greatest stories of his high school, college, professional career. So it's really a good listen and enjoy. But before I let you guys get to that, I wanted to talk to you guys about home security. Now, there is a normal way to do home security that's like messy and some guy has to show up and they're going to show up at like 2 p.m., which is now you got to ask off work at 2 p.m. Seriously. And then they don't show up until 545 anyway. Well, that's not how this works. With Simply Safe. Simply Safe is everything you need in a home security system. It's award-winning protection, and it's the two-time winner of the CNET Editor's Choice. Seriously, you get everything with Simply Safe. You get outdoor cameras, uh, doorbells alert you when someone's approaching your home. You get entry, motion, and glass break sensors. I mean, that's everything you need to know to keep your home safe, and you wouldn't even notice it's there. And anyone can do it. And seriously. It's only 50 cents a day. I mean, how much stuff do you have in your house? If we end up in a post-apocalyptic Mad Max world, aren't you going to be glad you spent 50 cents a day? And I hate contracts. They don't have contracts. So if I were you, I would go to simplysafe.com slash team today and you'll get free shipping and a 60 day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. I know you don't have a lot of budget right now. 60 days risk-free. Go for it. Go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash team. That's simplysafe.com slash team. And now, on to Kevin and Rodney Clark. Pregnant ladies and little kids better get the hell out of the way. Because I am running. I'm just, I'm like Forrest Gump, dude. I am running. So... The Titanic was the biggest ship on the ocean, but that didn't mean it was unsinkable. <laughs> I want you to use ombudsman in a sentence next week. I got one for you. My 
name is Kevin, the official ombudsman of the Just Press Play podcast. You like apples? <laughs> Alright, now we welcome on a special guest, former Razorback Butler Bulldog. We got Rodney Clark. And Rodney, it's been a been an interesting few weeks for you, hasn't it? It has for sure. It's been a, it's been crazy. Well, we uh I really appreciate you uh taking some time and hopping on them just to give a little backstory. Some any of our Arkansas fans that may listen to the the podcast may remember back in the day when you were playing what like was that 2010 11 time when you were playing at Arkansas? Yep, yep, 2009, 10, 11. Yep. And then Three transferred years. over to Butler and we might get into some of the college stuff here in a little bit, but I kind of want to talk about recently You've been playing overseas. You've done a, a couple of different. You started, I think, in Australia. I was seeing. Uh-huh. You played a little bit in Belgium and Germany, but recently you were playing in uh, an Italian league. Is that correct? That's correct. So here, in the past few weeks, the obviously the coronavirus outbreak has been kind of the the talk of the entire world, and especially yeah. there in Italy. And so. Can you kind of just walk me through, like how, like when did you first hear about it? How quickly did it kind of pop up there in Italy? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I've I've told a lot of people this story recently. It's just, uh, it was crazy how it started. I, really, I didn't even, honestly, didn't even know much about it. Just be, I knew it was over in China, but you know, didn't really look into it. Never really thought twice about it. I remember just getting back home from practice one day and actually my wife's mother had sent a text message to her and I that said, Hey, you guys need to pay attention to this. This could, this is a, not a good thing. And the news had put out that there were like two or three cases in Italy of the coronavirus. And we looked on the map and of course it's like an hour from us of where the cases were. I just remember that being the start. And then you know, I go to practice in the next couple of days and all of a sudden the guys that practice are talking about it's all of a sudden at 40, it's all of a sudden at 70 within, you know, two or three days. And it got to the point to where uh, there was actually a city about a 45 minutes to an hour from us that was the actual, you know, groundbreaking area to where it all started to spread. And it was right. a little bitty city. I think it was, I don't know, maybe 15, 20,000 people. And all of a sudden they had to quarantine the entire, that entire city. It kind of just, it it went really fast because they thought that they had the patient zero from the start. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where their whole, why this whole thing blew into just what it is right now. But they thought they had the right person and they didn't. And he had gone and, and they got the wrong guy and they couldn't find the actual patient zero. So it was spreading and spreading like wildfire and to a point to where, um, I just hear about, okay, well, we're, they're going to cancel a game or postpone a game. And then it started to get more serious and more serious. So, so it was kind of similar to, I mean, in a way where, you know, here in America, you're hearing, oh, they may play a game without fans or they may do this. Right. And then all of a sudden it was the NBA's canceled, the college basketball's canceled, everything. Was- right. And I think, you know, for uh, obviously Italy was the first one, you know, to come out and be like, okay, we're going to play. All of a sudden, you know, we thought, oh, it's just one game that's going to get postponed. They'll get they'll get control of it and it'll start back up. And then it got to the point to where they're like, OK, we're going to take, you know, three or four days off of practice. Let them the government clear all this up and then then we'll start practicing again. We'll play the game. And then it just kept getting worse to where they started. put They put, you know, they put it off a week of games and they put the next week off. And then finally they said, OK we're going to play the rest of the season without fans. And then that's when, you know, you saw all the sports center stuff with, with Italy coming out, like right. all the sports will be played without fans. And it was, it literally happened within, you know, a week, a week, maybe not even a week, a week. It was, it was crazy. 
crazy. Just kept getting worse and worse. So then they declare, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, they kind of declared uh, where you were at, a, I don't know if it was a red zone, but they kind of, it mm-hmm. gets really serious and it sounds like they're starting to shut things down. And at that point, are you guys trying to get back home or trying to get back here in the States or what, what's going through your head? Yeah, it was, it was, it was t- challenging uh, for me. It would have been easier if I, you know, if I was single over there and, and didn't have a family, I, I could have, I probably just would have been okay. Well, I'm gonna stick it out. But with them, I just, you know, constantly had that in the back of my mind. Right. When am I going to let this get to the point to where I'm going to get them home to where I feel like they're safe at home. And, um, you know, it got to the point to where we just basically, my wife and I decided we're going to stick this out. We're going to stay together because we had no cases in our city. And we thought for the most part, it was an hour away, which as long as, you know, we stayed, we're smart and just stayed around the house and didn't travel any, anywhere far, like we'd be okay. Until they finally, um, I remember one day they, they finally said that there, we got word that there were a couple cases in our city and that the whole region was going to be red zoned. So our entire, um, region of Lombardy, which was like, kind of like in, and over in Italy, they have regions, which are their States kind of like in the United States. So that state of Italy, the region of Lombardy was completely, we heard that it was going to be completely locked, like quarantined. And that's when it kind of started getting real for us. Like, Oh shoot. Like we're, but we're not, we're going to be red zoned as well. So, um, you know, it wasn't even a couple more days. And then all of a sudden the, the entire country is locked down, which was pretty crazy. So right. when, when it started getting to where we had cases in our own city and there was word that actually that, you know, we've told this story, actually a couple of news stations have asked my wife to speak about it, but we heard that our city was going to be, you know, our whole entire region was going to be locked down. And they told me, Hey, if you're going to get your, your family out, you need to do it immediately. So we literally got them packed within two and a half hours, got them to the airport and they flew out. So it was a pretty, pretty crazy, pretty, pretty crazy situation. Was it the city telling you that you needed to get out or was it your team kind of? So my, yeah, it was my team, my, my general mate, he knew, uh, you know, I was, it's, I'm, was blessed, I'm blessed to be able to play for the, the club that I was because they're family first through everything. And there's a lot of clubs right now. They're not like that. They aren't letting their Americans leave and, or not, uh, you know, giving their permission to go home. They're making them stick it out. But they told me, you know, if you want your family, if you feel comfortable getting them out of here and you want them safe in the States, then uh, you need to get them out. And they kind of got word from, you know, the mayor of the city and the government that that was going to happen before a lot of people knew. I so think. you were able to get a heads up and they were saying, yeah, get out. Yeah. So I got a heads up, thankfully, and got and got them out. So. So they were able to leave, but you were kind of stuck there for a little while. Is that correct? For sure. Yeah. Because, uh, we just want to get them home first priority, which we did that. And then my seat, my practices were still in limbo. So I couldn't just be like, okay, guys, I'll see you later. I'm going to go home until it gets better. Because as far as we knew at that point, we didn't even know if we'd be able to practice for a couple of days or what the case was. So I, I planned on just waiting it out and see, you know, when we'd be able to practice, when I'd be able to work out. And then they made the decision to quarantine for two, two weeks straight. And you know, you could, they made it to where you couldn't leave the house unless you were going to get food or unless you were going to get medicine. So it so, got pretty crazy real fast. So how were you able to get to where you are now? You got home less than a week ago. How were you able to get back here to the United States? So that, you know, that's another crazy situation <laughs> itself. So I had stuck, I, I told my wife, you know, I'm going to stick it out here uh, for the two weeks. I thought I was going to do that. And then you know, more development started happening with the government. So they put, they canceled our season until April 3rd, 
which was going to be, you know, three and a half weeks for me being home. And I'm like, okay, I'm a kind (laughs) of, I have to always be, you know, working out. I can't, I don't ever take time off. So I'm like, that's not going to work for me. I can't just sit here in this apartment and not get in the gym or anything like that. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I don't have my family there. I'm by myself. So, you know, my mind's just racing. So, um, I had heard that they were going to be canceling the league till April 3rd. And at the same time, the travel ban that Trump put out for Europe kind of came into play. And I knew I'd be able to get back, you know, being a U.S. citizen. But at the same time, it's scary because there's not many flights to get on to get back. So, um, I made the decision. My, my team basically, thankfully, just said, hey, you need to go home during this time. Be with your family. We give you permission to go home to the States. Get home and, and we'll call you back if it gets better. So I'd gotten a flight and that flight got canceled, which stretched me out even more because there was there were not enough people boarding these planes for the flights to continue. So they were just canceling all these flights. And uh, I got a flight out of Bologna, Italy. And I was really, really nervous getting to the airport thinking this thing could get canceled at any time. And I went into the airport and the, all the lights were off. All, I mean, it was like the, the entire airport was shut down and my heart just dropped. I mean, it's and like I you're in inside. a movie or something. This oh, it, real, it, probably. it was exactly like that. I just was shocked. And I go to the board and all I could see was red for all the canceled flights. And, you know, by the grace of God, I got the, the, the entire airport was shut down except for two flights that they let out that day. And I got on one of those flights. So wow, it was, it was, it was exactly like, I mean, all the people in there with masks that were in there, really n- nothing was open inside there except for the security gate. And then one of the, one of the two of the gates of the flights that were going out. So it was, it was eerie to walk in there like that. It really was something out of a movie that I'll never forget. And then, so I went from there and had to fly to London because at that point, London was not on the travel ban yet. And it actually, while I was in the airport, they got put on the travel ban. But luckily, Jeez. I got home and, you know, went through. <laughs> so it was pretty stressful and went through uh, Chicago Customs and, and got home. Thank God. Was it was it kind of even once you got here to Chicago, was it still wild there? I mean, I mean, you're still in an airport where people are yeah. still at this point. I mean, people in America are really starting to take this seriously. And Right, right. Yeah. And, and I had seen, you know, everyone had seen you know, with the travel ban in Europe, all those customs lines and all the people just crowded in the airports trying to get back to the U.S. and getting through customs and getting security checked and all that stuff and screening, health screening. So, you know, we had kind of expected that getting off the plane. And I knew it was, you know, we'd went on an hour flight and we landed into Chicago. And the first thing the captain said is, I'm sorry, but we're gonna have to keep you on the plane for 50 minutes for uh, customs and screening to get ready for y'all. So I'm like, oh, shoot, this is about to get real. Like, this is going to be crazy. So thankfully, we were this only the second flight into Chicago. So I had gotten up to the front of the line. And by the time I looked back, it was starting to get crazy. So I got out of there, though, before it got it got nuts there in Chicago that day. So it sounds like through a lot of this, I mean, a lot of pieces, you've been very fortunate. It sounds like a lot of pieces oh, have fallen into yeah. place, luckily, where you didn't really know what the, what the next day or hours could hold. And luckily, right. You know, I didn't sleep for three days thinking about flights and just, you know, you never like, I thought I could get stuck, you know, at least till April 3rd or whenever they were going to open some flights back up. And honestly, I had a ton of people praying for me back home and honestly felt those prayers and had a lot of favor because at any point that could have gone really like, there's a possibility because I'm sitting in the airport in Munich Germany. And that's when, you know, it's going over the intercom that Trump is banned 
the UK now and I'm flying to the UK. <laughs> so I'm wow, like, so oh, we're, shoot. Like, like, I'm just thinking that here at home, we're seeing this on TV like, oh, this is what's happening. But you're in yeah, the airport I'm, as the news I'm is getting I'm in broke. that mess. Yeah. Thinking, oh, wow, I'm, I might get stuck here in Germany and then I can't get to UK and I can't get back to Italy now that I've left Italy. So I'm, I, I was I was in the middle of no, like to Talk a point to where stress. something went wrong. Yeah, I'm stuck in Germany now and I can't even get back to my apartment in Italy. So if it went worse, if it even got worse. So yeah, it was a stressful two days for sure. And it's been a stressful two weeks, but it feels so much better to be back here in the States. Well, and I don't know, I haven't heard, I don't know for sure. And I'm sure you can let me know, but we, your kids and I think your wife, they've been testing. Everybody's fine. Are you? Yep. Yep. So they came back, they've been quarantining, uh, and the health department basically told me to quarantine with them when I got back. So really only one, one of one of us in the family showed symptoms, and that was my youngest son. So we were a little nervous about that, just because he's so young, and which it hasn't affected kids for whatever reason. But still, I mean, it's your kids. So, so yeah, yeah, still our kids. So yeah, he's still thinking, oh man. So you know, we come from the region, and so they they finally took him and got him tested, and and under the assumption that if he had it, you know, they were just pretty much going to diagnose all of us with it because right. it's so contagious that we would have had it if he had it. So. It came back negative, and no one else has showed any sign or symptoms, so we're all good. And it sounds like you've definitely had some uh, the man up above kind of watching over you all. Oh, that's all that's this. for sure, man. That's for sure. Uh, have you been in contact with anybody, like any of your teammates or anybody from Italy, about how things? I mean, is it getting any better over there? Is it just? Yeah, yeah. That, so we have a group chat, and I mean, they're messaging every day through there. They, they all are. You know, a lot of them joke about it just because they're stuck in the apartments, and you know, they can't go anywhere, but. It's for the, it sounds honestly, the media is making it, it's really, really bad. Like it's really bad, but the media is putting out a lot of false numbers and doing a lot of things, you know, being over there and being in it and seeing it firsthand, it is awful. Like it's a bad situation, but a lot of the numbers are being skewed for Italy. And as far as I know now, I know that the numbers are going up in terms of deaths and in terms of cases, but they plan for that over the next two or three days. They're thinking it's going to hit its peak at, like completely. And then in two or three days, it'll be the end of their two-week quarantine. So they plan on the numbers drastically going down, kind of like China and now South Korea. So they were pretty uh, – you know, with Italy, they're not scared really to do anything. Like they'll shut down anything, obviously, that immediately without any any well, thought like that's whatsoever. They, they pretty much shut so, down the whole country, right? I mean, they yeah, shut yeah. it all and down. And I think, I think that was the only way that they were going to be able to, at some point, flatten that curve with all the cases. But I think I think if you give it another week, I think that they're going to be able to get it to a point to where it, people may not believe that just because the deaths and the cases are up so much, but they're, um, they're doing what they need to do. They're trying to follow the same plan that China and South Korea have done now, So, and they're actually starting to starting to get better and better each day so well, that's that is, good to your point i mean i this is ser- serious and very scary and like for people here in america like i think it's yeah. worth taking serious to like stay home and let's not try to go to right. crowded areas but yeah. at the same time you hear those number all, all you see right now reported is like cases and deaths you don't see recoveries yeah. you don't see you exactly. just see the bad news yeah. right now and i mm-hmm. so sometimes it's worth being cautious and aware but also you don't have to it's not the end of the world you know so yeah yeah um, and you know we we just try to tell people you know now that we've been back home like family and friends like 
it's, we know how Americans are, and, and I know a lot of people are taking it serious right now. We're trying to tell everyone that we know, look, it's it's nothing to play around with because if people aren't serious about it, it could get really, really bad. But at the same time, like you said, I mean, the numbers are the, – the media is trying to make it, for the most part, worse than what it really is, I think. And uh, it's, it's obviously – it's a horrible thing. I don't want to downplay it at all, but at the same time – um, it's scaring a lot of people and there's a lot of fear and a lot of panic when I think people need to relax a little bit as well. Well, I'm glad you and your family have gotten back home and everything seems to be, at least for you guys, seems to be kind of in the clear for now. And hopefully yep. it, it stays that way for your teammates over in Italy. I know things yeah, are for sure. tough times yeah. there. I kind of yep. wanted to go back a little bit now and, and change mm-hmm. subjects and talk a little bit about high school and back with, when you were at Vertigris. There was a... okay. Some some crazy. You you played as a freshman. Did you were you on the varsity team? Is that correct? Yes, as a freshman. Yep. And did you like? Was it kind of one of those things where you got there and you you thought you'd be on varsity as a freshman, or did that kind of surprise you? Uh, honestly, at that point, I kind of expected it. Um, you know, I was really small. As it, I mean, a lot of guys, people say I'm still small now, obviously, but <laughs> I was really, really small when I was a fr- I hadn't hit puberty or anything, and I was I was probably five four as a freshman in high school, five five, five six maybe, and uh, I knew I could play. I just, and my uncle was my head coach, so I knew I was going to have a shot to you know to to start and play as a freshman. But he wasn't going to give me anything either. I was going to have to earn all that. But I had a uh, I had a I, yeah I planned on I planned on playing varsity for sure. Well, I was reading some stuff about, and, and you never know what's, what's true. And I, I wanted to ask, I was reading a Wikipedia thing and mm-hmm. it was saying about, it was talking about you putting shots up when you were younger. Like I think in yeah. middle school, seventh grade and attempting like 500 shots a night. And it said yep. that you actually wore out the school shooting machine. Is that correct? Or is that, is that a, a myth? I mean, I mean, I don't know if it was all me, like, but you know, we had, we did have a shooting machine, especially when I was in the eighth grade before high school at, uh, when I lived in Denison, Texas. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was on that thing obviously two or three times a day, every day. And that thing did get to the point to where it was pretty much broken down. But, you know, that, that also, I mean, I, I'd probably say 95% of the shots put up on that thing were me, but there were also people, other people shooting on it too. But, uh, I don't know. I guess you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> so you were kind of, like you said, you were, you were smaller, especially your freshman, sophomore year. And you probably got looked at as I, I, I'm sure you heard the narrative all the time. Like, Oh, he's too small. Yeah. He can shoot, but he's too small and all this. For stuff. sure. Yeah. When was it, by the time you graduated, you were a big time recruit or at least mm-hmm. I mean, people were aware of you and you were getting some serious yeah. offers. Was yeah. it around your sophomore year? Is that when you kind of really started? Cause I, I was, I remember seeing stuff about like a three game tournament where you had a really good, like 41, yeah. 44 and then maybe 50 or something. Is that, is that kind of yeah. what you got on the map? Yeah. So I had a really, I, my, in between my freshman and sophomore summer, I shot up. So I went, I mean, obviously not a lot, like, cause my size I am now about six foot and I grew about six inches though over that summer. And I had a really good summer in, in summer ball with, with uh, my Nike team that I was playing with and had a really good, really good year that year in the summertime, which helped a lot. But then when I went into high school, yeah, my going into my sophomore year, I've, I was obviously bigger. I was stronger and uh, had a couple of really good tournaments to start out the year. And, uh, yeah, that's when I started pretty much getting letters from everyone. And just I, I just remember getting my first – no, I got my first letter when I was a freshman, but it was from a lo, from Tulsa University, a local college. And I think my first letter that came in in my sophomore year was Michigan State. And when I got that, I was like, okay, this is – 
this could get for real if I, if you know, if I keep putting the work in. So is that the point? I'm always interested in this point. Like, so obviously, even freshman year, even before that, when you're middle school, you you probably, if you're anywhere, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what what year that would be. But like, if you're any, I remember watching when I was younger, watching like JJ Reddick and thinking, oh man, oh, yeah. that's yeah. one day I want to try to be that one day, you know. And you probably <laughs> did the same thing. But when did you actually sure. think? This is legit. Like, was it sophomore year? You thought I could, I can make it. I can go D one. Or were you already thinking freshman year? When did it really yeah, hit you no, that you can? I think you can make it really. Happen? I think it really hit me my sophomore year because I always, I always knew I could do it. But you know, just being so small, and I knew it was going to take a lot at that point. Just be, and I knew I was putting the work in, and I, I, you know, I was, I was doing all I possibly could. But to really get you know, start getting those letters and getting all that interest from those big time colleges. My sophomore year was really when I thought, okay, like I just need to keep doing what I'm doing. And, and this is, this is a, you know, this is going to be a possibility for me. I so think that really, my sophomore year. Did that really kick? I mean, you were already in the gym a lot, but did that kind of put you in overdrive? You're like, all right, I'm, I got to go even harder. I got to work out even more and really try to yeah, put it, it gave time. It gave me even more fuel. Yeah. To the fire, it even put more fuel to the fire, you know, knowing that it just kind of got me all hyped up. You know, knowing what I was doing was paying off and I needed just to keep going and, and even put in more if I could. So now fast forwarding on, I, you ended up, I don't know for sure if I was trying to look it up. I couldn't tell, but I know at one point you set the record for Oklahoma scoring in high school. I don't know. Is that still yep. stand or is? Yeah, it still stands. Yep. <laughs> so you and you and all, uh, for anyone who remembers watching, if you were watching Hoots back then, uh, you and Keaton Page were definitely yeah. back and forth. And I think he ended yep. up like not too far behind you in yeah, all time yeah. scoring. <laughs> Uh, I was seeing, is, is this true that, uh, your, the high school games got so packed? I mean, Verdigris is not a huge town and a huge stadium. No, yeah. And they got so yeah. big that they had ended up having to put like Verdigris on the highway exit sign there in, in Oklahoma. It's true. Yeah, it's true. For, and we, you mentioned Keaton. Like the funny thing is, is him and I are still, him and I, he's my best friend since I oh, was really? fourth grade. Yeah. Him and I were best men's at our wedding. And, you know, he's been a friend of mine since I can remember, but, uh, my best friend. But yeah, it was, Vertigris, I think the population when I was there was like 1900 <laughs> and, uh, the, the arena probably sat maybe 2000 max, I would guess. And yeah, it, it got to a point to where, you know, there was standing room only like there, they wouldn't let people in the gyms because it was a fire hazard, like even on road games and even in bigger, bigger arenas that we played in, there were fire, fire hazards and standing room only. And they did put a sign up for Vertigris and, you know, they, they did a lot of things that year that were kind of crazy that that was just kind of made the year more just more fun, I guess. But it wasn't from what I gathered, uh, it wasn't always just fun. There was there was some times where you got a lot of lot of hate and people didn't oh, like yeah. you and thought you were yeah. trying to run up. Like, what was some of that where people were kind of it was tough a little bit, you know, other opposing yeah, fans. It, every I mean, every game it was it was not only the fact, you know, it was just you know, guys were coming after me, you know, because I think it was my, my sophomore year, really, no one really thought, oh, he's really going to break the scoring record. I mean, I averaged, I think like 34 as a sophomore a game, but it was, it, it wasn't a thing where people thought, oh, he's going to run off a couple years, three years in a row like that and, and get the record. So it started getting real bad. Um, my junior year when people started, you know, I, I bumped up my scoring average. I got better each year. I was like 20 to 34 to 37 or 38, my junior year. And people started like making a big deal. Like, Oh, if he keeps this up and you know, next year averages a couple more, he may have the record. And then, you know, got to the point to where I was, 
scoring a lot of points each game. We were beating some teams pretty bad, and I was taking a lot of a lot of cheap shots, a lot of a lot of hate from people just because. I don't know. They just it was just us being ranked so high too. You know, every every year we're ranked one or two in the state, and then at the same time, all the attention coming around the scoring record. Obviously, people didn't want me to put big numbers up on them, and it was uh, it got really crazy. You know, for pretty much every game. I can imagine. And then I think I heard you on uh, maybe on an interview before you were talking about was it your senior year? Y'all, you ended up. I think y'all got to state one state, the first and only state championship for Verdigris. Is that correct? Yeah, my senior year. Yep. Yep. And then was it was it the state final? No, it was one of those big playoff games that they didn't they like didn't allow anybody into the stadium to like right before. That sounds like a weird atmosphere. It was it was probably it was one of the craziest things I've seen in terms of and I've seen a lot of crazy stuff playing basketball, but that's one of the that's one of the top things that I'll never forget was warming up with no one in the arena because the crowd was so big. And then they open the gates and I just remember shooting in warmups and then you just stop and look up and there's people just sprinting to get to seats because they didn't have assigned seats and they were just sprinting to flooding through the arena trying to get to a spot. Golly. And they ended up turning about 5,000 people, they said, away that day. The games, the game had over 14,000 people at it, a high school game. So it was, it was, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. I think, I don't know if it still stands. I don't know if it's actually true or not, but it's believed to be the most people ever at a high school game in Oklahoma. And that's, I wouldn't doubt it. I believe it. it. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it for sure. Um, Now moving on to Arkansas or moving on to college and you ended up going Mm -hmm. to the university of Arkansas. Yep. You had some offers from some pretty big schools. What made you choose? I did. What made you choose Arkansas? And what were some other schools was, you were thinking about? Yeah, so it was it was numerous things for me. Um, you know, I, I, I was getting recruited by a bunch of big schools. I mean, I, I got offers from North Carolina, and you know, I got offers from really Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, local schools like Gonzaga was one I was really looking at. You know, Baylor, all, all those places on Kentucky. Like all those places I was getting offers from, but I knew from the start that I didn't want to go somewhere like North Carolina or somewhere like that. And, you know, I was trying to think what was, you know, what was best for me at that point. I I didn't think I'd get a chance to play immediately, maybe somewhere like that coming in as a freshman. And um, I wanted to go somewhere that I had a chance to play immediately and let alone possibly start as a freshman. So that was really important to me. And uh, at the same time, I had a, I had some family in Fayetteville. My grandma and my uncle and aunt were in Fayetteville at that point. So I knew, you know, I knew my parents were going to be about two hours down the road in Oklahoma. But having my grandma here and just having some, you know, being able to have some home cooked meals and things like that was important just to have family by me. So I knew Arkansas was going to be a situation I'd come in, have a chance to play. And, you know, it ended up working out to where, unfortunately, because, you know, Pat, Pat Beverly got in trouble and they, they he got kicked out of school. But so it, it took me from, you know, being probably a bench guy into a starting role on a, as a freshman on a on an SEC team. Was so that Beverly was really there your freshman year there. Did he did he get did he leave at right before you started that year? He was there the whole summer. And, OK, OK. Yeah. So, so you worked out, before. you went against him during workouts and stuff or oh, yeah. that him probably I, helped him. your game out a lot. Cause that, oh, that man. Yeah, I was so, ex- I was so excited to play with him too. And then, you know, him and Courtney and me and, you know, right. we, we were really starting to build, you know, some chemistry and stuff throughout the summer. And then him getting in trouble was really unfortunate, but you know, it propelled me kind of into a, 
okay, now I'm going to have to have a take on a bigger role. And, you know, Coach Pell even talked to me bef- about that before the year. And I knew Coach Pell at the time, too. Also, the coaching, you know, he, I trusted him. And, and trust was a big key for me, you know, in terms of a coach. And I felt like I had a pretty good read on who was being honest with me and who wasn't. And I, I felt like I could I could feel people out, at, you know, feel coaches out at that certain situation to know, you know, who was being real and who wasn't because there's a lot of with that recruiting process there's so many people you never know if they're fake or not and it's hard to to, to discern that but felt i had a pretty good radar for that and um my official visit actually is what won me over i had the i had a blast you know hung out with michael sanchez and they took me uh out to houston nuts pond actually the day (laughs) of a football game and i fished for about two or three hours they knew they knew uh what to what to win me over with and um uh having a chance to play early too is a big was a big thing so then your your sophomore year you uh have that game i'm sure you know which game i'm talking about where you hit the threes <laughs> yeah. and, and score 51 <laughs> and set a sec and team yeah. record is that yeah would you say that's your most memorable game or 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 just up there is it maybe in the top five I think it'd be in the top five for sure. I mean, obviously, you know, at a university like Arkansas with, with all the history and all the players that have come through here and the legends that have come through here, people have won championships and, you know, done so many great, been NBA players and done so many great things. And to know yeah, that, famers, yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And to know that, you know, me, little, little white boy from Verdigris, Oklahoma holds the, three-point record not only in the sec but the, for arkansas and then the points right it's just it's something you you know that you wouldn't you wouldn't think of so i think that's you know arkansas being the university it is and having tradition that it has with basketball you know is is, is something that's really special to be able to have my name in the record book like that i'm telling you that game you just kept just kept hitting kept hitting kept hitting I, <laughs> I, did you ever have coaches tell you to like did you always have the green light or was there ever like a co- like coaches saying like, what are you doing pulling up from that deep and pulling up that often? Uh, yeah, I never really had that issue unless until I got to playing professionally. And then that was something new for me. <laughs> but, uh, I, but yeah, throughout college I was, you know, with coach, coach Pell and then with Brad Stevens at Butler, I was, you know, I was pretty much green light whenever I wanted, which was, uh, I guess, a good feeling going into a game, knowing that people trust you to let it go wherever you're, wherever you're at. <laughs> well, and so after that sophomore year, uh, I believe it was, was it after the sophomore year that Pelfrey, the the Arkansas parted ways with Coach Pelfrey? It was after my junior year. Okay, and then that's when yep. you decided. Mike Anderson was coming in. And you decided to to open up to transfer. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. That's probably the toughest. You know, I've, I've told a lot of people now sending my family home here in this situation the past two weeks is probably one of the tougher decisions I've made. But before that, I mean, that decision to leave Arkansas after, you know, all the relationships I had made, not only with the players and, and all that, with the fans and the pa- the passionate fan base and knowing I was going to let so many people down and so many people, you know, g- get mad at me. That was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. But, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people n- knew, but I did try and stick it out, you know, for the summer for well, a month or two. Because you asked for your leave, but then, and then right. you were like, you decided to stay for a little while longer and try it out, right? Yeah. Well, the, the thing was, is I... I had thought about it and you know what I said, I, you know, I'm going to stick this thing out. And then I had gone in to ask for my release and, you know, a lot of people misinterpret the situation or there's some, a lot of false, false stuff that goes on through it. No one really knows what happened, but I basically told I wasn't going to get it until, you know, a couple of days after. So 
gotcha. uh, that's where all the mess got got made. But you know, it was. I, I, I talk to my wife now. I talk to people about this now, and I, I think if I would just had social media at that point, like Twitter or you know mainly Twitter, if I could have just opened up to some people and you know let them know what I was feeling at that time, you know, to people in the masses, kind of throughout the state. Right, right. I felt like it would have gone over a lot better, but I didn't really have. I guess you I weren't able to get Facebook your, you weren't really Yeah, able I wasn't to able to get my – exactly, yeah. And I wanted people to know how I felt, and I wasn't trying to do anything disrespectful. I was trying to handle myself in the best way I possibly could, and I wish I could have gotten that message out to more people than than what I did, I think. Yeah, there's there's times where social media and Twitter can get guys in trouble, but it also – I mean it, it lets you get your side of the story out, whereas for it's, sure. sometimes it's hard for – especially athletes – there, it's yeah. not always you controlling the narrative and Twitter is able to let social media is able to let you get your side out. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so your, your decision, you ended up going to Butler. You got some, I, I, I remember at the time kind of thinking you might go to Oklahoma just because you yeah. get back to Oklahoma, but that was kind yeah. of, they were kind of in some middle of some sanctions, correct? At that point. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the easy route. You know, I, I knew, you know, going back there was going to be easy. And they, you know, they did have some sanctions going on that scared me a little bit. Uh, they had pretty much reassured me and through that process that nothing was going to affect me, which nothing, nothing, it ended up being nothing would have if I would have right. gone there, but it was still a little nerve wracking. And I knew that was me, you know, kind of taking the easy route when I knew in the back of my mind, I kind of wanted to give Butler a shot, but you know, I ended up doing that, which was turned out to be one of the best decisions I've ever made. Well, and it already sounds like from talking with you and about how the recruiting process went of getting to Arkansas and how trust with Pelfrey was big. And, and yeah. I, it, I mean, you look at Brad Stevens now. Just I, I bet it, Brad Stevens to get you in a room and talk to him about basketball. I bet it's easy to want to go play for that guy. Oh and then man! Like yeah, getting a chance to go play in a tournament that was coming off what Butler went to the exactly. championship two years in a row. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. So that probably made it, but. Going to Butler, transferring, you had to sit out your that yeah, for a whole year. That was, that that was be, the negative. You just talked yeah. about how much you love being in the gym. That had to oh, kill man. you sitting out a year, right? It was – that was <laughs> that's one of my lowest points in terms of basketball in my life is being having to sit out that year and watch all those guys go on to road trips and me just sit you back. You couldn't even and, travel, right? No, I couldn't travel. But it made me a better player. You know, I had that whole year to – I was going against one of the best defenders in the country at that point too that would play was for Butler. Nord, and, Ronald Nord? Yeah, Nord, yep. Yep. And, uh, so I got to go against him every single day. And then when they were on the road, it just, you know, at that first year being there, I didn't really have too many friends. I really hadn't had a chance to settle in. So I was just constantly in the gym, which, which made me better. So, well, and so that, so when you first got to Arkansas, you're going up against your, and in practice, you're going up against Beverly. And then when you, when you yeah. get to Butler, you're going up against Norwich. I mean, that's some, you're getting some serious D during, uh, oh, defense yeah. during your oh, practice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then actually, I guess, I was didn't you probably were playing some more like scout team point guard while you were sitting out, which is always something you're working on because you never wanted to be known as just a spot up shooter, right? Exactly. That was one of the that was one of the things too. That's what one of the things that sold me with Butler is Brad. You know, Brad called me and the first thing he said is, "I don't want you to play shooting guard. I want you to play point guard." And that kind of raised my interest because I knew playing overseas, I wasn't going to be able to just be a shooter or playing wherever I was wanting to play professionally. I couldn't just be a shooter at six foot. So I wanted to be able to, to make myself into a, a, you know, not only a combo, but for, to be, to be a point guard. And I think that 
you know, people who watch my game at Arkansas, if they were to watch, you know, get on film and or synergy or something and watch my games now, they would they would be shocked at, you know, just I'm a completely different player than I was when I played at Arkansas. So um, probably your most so the most memorable game probably at Arkansas for fans is that fifty one point game. Probably the most memorable at least shot while you were at Butler was that shot against Marquette that blew up. What what was that like when you hit that game winner? <laughs> That was that was pretty crazy for Arkansas too. You know, a lot of people would say you know that fifty one obviously was up there, but there were two games uh, my freshman year that I played in that literally is it was Bud Walton was it's the loudest possible. Bud Walton when it's at its peak, that place gets loud. We played Oklahoma and Texas in the same week my freshman year and knocked them both off and. It was literally, I can remember looking at the floor thinking, my feet are vibrating out here <laughs> on this floor. Like, it's so loud. But, yeah, that and then, um, yeah, the Maui Invitational game winner at, our, at Butler was pretty crazy. I kind of just threw that one up there with one hand at the end. And Still it's a pretty prepared, cool atmosphere. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So we're kind of wrapping up, I, I wanted to ask just a couple of just quick fire questions just about kind of your playing career. Who is – the toughest guy you've ever had to guard on the court, just for just whatever through, reason, just you my had entire a tough time. Yeah, for whatever it might not be the best player you ever played against, but just for whatever reason, the toughest guy you had to guard mm, probably be John Wall. Oh, well, yeah, that's hopefully that's I'm probably up there. I didn't guard him too much during that game <laughs> because I usually wasn't on one of the best players. But there's a couple times I got caught up with him and just thinking this dude is the fastest dude I've ever played against in my life. I mean, he just has another like, gear yeah. that, that oh, man. other yeah. guys just don't have. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And then who would be the toughest guy, uh, toughest defender you went up against in your career? Probably Victor Oladipo. Really? When I was at Butler. Yep, played. You them knocked when them I was, off when uh, they were number one ranked Indiana, we did. right? We did. Yep, yep. Where was that? He, at? Was uh, that in? Was that in Hinkle or was that at Indiana? That was where the Pacers play at Bankers Life oh, Field wow. House. Wow. Yeah. So there was that was a pretty cool atmosphere too. There's about seventeen thousand in there, and yeah, I did. I I scored a good amount that game, but a lot of them were when he was checked out for a couple minutes, taking a rest. So so uh, yeah, he was probably the best defender I've ever faced. Um, most memorable game? Do you have like a number one or is it hard to put one as your most memorable? Yeah, it's, it's hard to put one, you know, in terms of my career, like, you know, each level I could say probably, you know, with my high school career, my state, the state championship game. And, you know, I'd say still college games, probably just the game I played in the NCAA tournament and won just always a goal for me. And then, you know, I've had a couple really, really good games as a professional that I've, that I've remembered as well. What was it like? You know, going. I know you were. You thought about sticking around and trying to go through the D League and make it to the NBA, and then you decided to go mm-hmm. overseas. What was it like yep. first going overseas? And just the, the was there a big culture change? Was it not as not as wild? Were yep. you there alone? Like what what was that like going overseas to play? Yeah, it was. It was uh, for me. It wasn't too bad just because I went to Australia. You know, I, I had thought about doing the the D League at the time, and uh, you know, I just honestly I didn't have the money. Like I didn't have the. I could. I couldn't afford to go do that. I was about to be married and have to support my wife and that's probably my biggest regret is not just taking one year and just give myself a shot but you know it is what it is and but the first year in terms of you know culture shock wasn't too bad just because the people spoke english i think the worst thing was they drove on the opposite side of the road and i got (laughs) almost gotten a couple wrecks to start off start off the year but other than that it wasn't too bad but my first year in, in europe was pretty pretty big culture shock but at least i had my wife there with me at that time yeah well 
It's been cool. I, I remember, I, I think I was messaging this with you before, but mm-hmm. I, I remember watching you when you were first coming up and thinking, Oh, I want to, I, I, I kind of wanted I, as a shorter guy, you know, I wanted to try to become <laughs> something similar. Obviously, hence yeah. why I'm doing a podcast now. It didn't work out as well for me <laughs> as it did for you. <laughs> um, but it's been cool to see your career go and, and still, no, see you still playing. And, and I really yeah. appreciate you coming and spending some time on the podcast with me. No problem, man. I appreciate you. Appreciate you giving me the time. It's just know, fun to talk. Just before you get out here, do you know when you'll get a chance to get back and get back in the court, or is it just kind of up in the air right now? Right now, I just so I just got a bought a basketball goal and I'm had someone drop it off and I'm starting to work out here out inside my driveway. But other than that, I mean, they they've told us April third, and I don't know how in there's any way possible that we'll start games April third with the way the situation is right now. But yeah, there as far as I know, they're one of the leagues, one of the very few leagues over there that want to finish the season so i mean my guess would maybe be they call us back over late april if everything starts settling down so we'll see i guess well hopefully hopefully it is yeah hopefully they call me back it doesn't shock me at all to hear you say you bought a goal and you're getting something set up outside (laughs) i remember i was reading when you got your ankle surgery and you weren't able to play for however long that yeah, just killed you. So it doesn't, it doesn't oh, shock me to know you're. you're yeah, I can't. I got too much energy built. I can't. I can't stay sitting down for too long. So, well, yeah, I re- I'm glad to hear you're good. Your wife's good. Your kids are good, and everyone's all right. And you're back here in in Arkansas. Thank you. I appreciate and, that. And good luck going forward. I really appreciate you coming on with me. No problem, man. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. All right, Rod. All right, man. Bye. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's join M-I-D-I dot com.